Well, welcome everyone to another segment of our mental health moments. Thanks for being here today. Uh, I know we're starting just a couple minutes late, so thanks for hanging in there with us. So really um, looking forward to our segment today. I think we're really in for, for a great treat. And uh, I'd like to, again, always welcome our behavioral health therapist, Charles Latour. I think he's a little bit off screen there. Charles, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing, Linda? Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Thanks for Thank being you. here as always. And we have a very special guest today. So today joining us um, is Mandy Southers. Mandy is the executive director of the Darjun Foundation. So looking forward to a discussion with Mandy today. Mandy, how are you? I'm good. <clears throat> Great. Well, thanks so much for taking time to, to be with us today. So as we kick off a new year and we're really kind of looking at uh, what all comes with a new year and, and also maybe reflecting on, on what has happened last year, we decided to dive into a topic that we feel is, is really important um, in, in our community. This isn't just something that's happening in somebody else's community. This is happening in our community. And so today we're going to learn more about um, the Darjun Foundation and Mandy's gonna tell us more about that. And we're really going to dive into the the topic of addiction. And like I said, as, as much as we wanna believe this might be someone else's problem, it is indeed our problem. So we wanna talk about that, bring some awareness to it and uh, have a discussion surrounding that. So Charles, I wanna start with you today and just really you know, kind of reflect on, on going from 2022 to 2023 and uh, your thoughts on why we really should talk about this very important uh, subject of addiction. Yeah, it's almost one of those great questions that's so great, it's almost where to begin. I mean, there, actually, when you think about it, there's we've been doing what we're doing almost three years, and all of 22, we hit some great topics. I've actually loved the topic list that we had through 2022. The other thing I think that's great about it is, it, especially when we got into some of the information around um, the social media and the belief by a lot of people that there's even an addictive quality to social media, so on and so forth. It really got me thinking through that time, even back then, that one thing we haven't, during the course of these programs, done a lot of work on is the, um, the whole social media addiction piece. And it got me thinking we haven't done much on addictions generally, right? So today is an opportunity to take a look at that. I really thought the timing of it would be great. The timing of, you know, you start a new year. A lot of times we're looking at change, what the new year is going to be like for us. Is there something that we do want to look at, something that we want to dive into? And we can make the most out of that too. So seems like a really good time to look at this and a time where people are making changes for themselves. But one thing I want to say about it, why I think it's great and important to talk about is it's a spectrum of a disorder, right? Or a spectrum of illness, perhaps, that there could be any extreme all the way to um, people homeless, living on the streets due to alcohol or whatever else that may have led to them, or somebody else at the total other end of the spectrum 
who's just, you know, maybe my drinking's got a little out of control, or maybe my internet use has gotten a little out of control, or maybe my uh, social media, whatever it is, um, there's the great uh, Stanford psychiatrist, Anna Lemke, says we're all dealing on some level with some sort of addiction. So because of the society we live in today. So it's a great topic and somehow, somehow relevant to pretty much everybody. So for those reasons, I think it's a great thing to be able to work with today. Absolutely. Well, th thanks for framing that up for us. So Mandy, we want to learn a little bit more about you and about the Darjun Foundation. So if you can give us kind of a brief summary of um, about yourself and Darjun and what does Darjun do in our community? Tell us about that work that is that is happening. Um, well, so I'm Mandy Southers. I'm our CEO and founder of uh, Darjun Recovery Homes and Recovery Services Foundation. Um, I'm also a person in long-term recovery, so I just celebrated 11 years on July 14th of uh, 2022. Um, a brief summary is I um, was one of those people that they said would probably never get clean and sober. I was on the highest spectrum, kind of looked at as like hopeless on the computer scales of things. Um, and... I, you know, broke a lot of rules in my treatment center. I wasn't there to get sober. I was there to get out of prison um, on a 50 UI case. And a judge believed in me enough to not sentence me to prison and um, said, you know, I hope you do good things. And uh, my sponsor said, you know what? I think you need to make an amends to the community for all the hardships you've put on Green Bay. And I took my old bar and transformed it into the first recovery community center in the state that led to services and we now do peer services for all of Bell and Health, HSHS. Um, we're in four counties, um, ranging down from Door County all the way through to Fond du Lac where we have peer services where recovery coaches and peer specialists go into hospital on to the bed after triage on scene of overdoses, help the families, all drug, meth addictions, um, and we have recovery homes. So we house people on a different level. We don't wait till they're 30 days clean um if somebody has a want and a will to get clean and sober and they have 24 hours if they come into the ed bed and they've just overdosed and we're pretty much on the brink of death if they meet the assessment to come in i will bring them home we say i say you want to go home It'd be 11 o'clock at night i'll say you want to come home with me and then it really is about the community of the houses that really helps us as the staff clean you know help them get through it. It's not about us. It's the community of people in recovery is known to make great waves with helping others. So it's kind of a brief synopsis of Darjun. We've been around nine years. It started from something that was an old bar to where we are today. And I uh, never really expected it to get this far. So I don't really think I drove it. There was a lot of, you know, higher power and spirit behind that one. Mm. Well, lots of congratulations coming in, Mandy, for you. Uh, lots of people saying congratulations and, and how amazing it is. So we all congratulate you and, and thank you for pushing this work forward and for the amazing things that you're doing in our community. Just phenomenal, phenomenal work. Um, there's a chat in here for you right off the bat. It said, what changed your mindset to get you to recovery? Um, you know... 
that's changed throughout the last 11 years. If you would ask me two years ago, which is a good topic, what two years ago, what changed my mindset was I started to like myself again. Mm. I hated myself. You know, every alcoholic and addict out there, they kind of pray at night. They're like, well, you know, when's the last stent? When am I just going to be taken out of this world? And, you know, we don't even realize we're dying every day using, you know, we're at the brink of the bottom of the cave of the worst. And I started to love myself again through there. I found some hope, but now at 11 years, I can say, well, okay, Mandy, how did that happen? I had a counselor that believed in me more than I believed in myself. And she loved me more than I could love myself. And I uh, don't think I'd be where I am today. I had a judge that was known to be the hardest judge in our community, Judge Warpinski, who should have sentenced me to these six years I was supposed to serve in prison, who let me walk out of a courtroom. You know, and now in the nature of things, it was really just somebody to believe in me. I just needed one person to say, kid, you're all right. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with you. Let me love you till you can get there. And that's really what Darjun is built off of. Yeah. We built off a let me love you till you can love yourself program. We're not one of those programs. It's like, oh, you did this. We are very forgiving. And we get a little muck in the community about that. We allow, if they relapse, we keep them. We give them a relapse plan. We don't kick people out on the street when it's zero below. I don't believe in that. You know, sometimes it takes a lot of muster to get that somebody to learn to love themselves. And so I had somebody believe in me for eight long months and my mother and my father. My mother stopped enabling me. My mother was enabling me and my father and I was adopted when I was seven, came out of a very abusive home. So they tried to love that, you know, too much. And finally, my mom said, I'm done with you. We're unadopting you. You're taking your old name back if you don't. And her being tough led me to be tough. So there's a lot of outcomes of it. But the basic word would be, finally, somebody came from their heart. This Mm -hmm. wasn't about a book. It wasn't about me being a number or, you know, screening to a level four. It was about somebody said, screw all the, sorry, throw the paperwork out. And what is that empty spot in your heart that we need to help you fill? It's really what it came down to. Yeah. It's just somebody loves me. And I felt they did. Charles, I, I just know you want to double click on that. And I know that I know it. I just know it. I know you want to double click on that. And you want to maybe tell us a little bit more about why that is so important in terms of in terms of treatment and in terms of all of us potentially helping somebody in our lives that we that we may know that that has that has this issue what what are your thoughts on what mandy shared pretty incredible i mean it's um to at the end of the day i think it really comes down to belief belief in yourself I've seen so many times over the years where belief in yourself was the hardest thing to get to. And it took belief from others. It took belief from people in the community that maybe you didn't even think were in your corner or behind you. And once you find that out and you could get more of that, um, I find that a lot in athletes that the coach believes in you more than you believe in you. You're going to, you have a better chance of rising to that level. And when no one believes in you, including you, it's a much harder road. But I love what she was describing and the capacity to 
I think the credit goes to you to take that belief and do something with it um, and make the most out of it. So the story is incredible. The belief is incredible. But then what you had done, I mean, when you had talked about, I wasn't sure even when I started the program, I wasn't shooting for 11 years, but 11 years later, still doing what you're doing and helping people in the community the way you're helping them, but also continuing to strengthen yourself. I think those things are all absolutely great. Um, but sometimes, one other thing I'm gonna say is with, along with that belief, sometimes it just takes one, one spark, one chance, something that is, okay, this is gonna be different. And that one chance is something that can spark what I think is the underlying thing of all of this, which is hope. That as long as we still have hope, that little four letter word means so much and that chance sparks hope and then you make of it what you do. So again, fabulous, amazing story. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. So Charles, let's talk about how, you know, one of the reasons that we really wanted to do this segment as well, and, and this has been one of our goals since we began this series, is to reduce the stigma. You know, we wanted to reduce the stigma on mental health, and we want to reduce the stigma on addiction. And uh, I guess just from your perspective, you know, can you help us understand and just kind of elaborate on what we do have going on in our community, in our Bellin community, as far as addiction goes? Yeah, so there's a couple things that I really want to go into on this and why I think it's such a great question. So we, there's some belief, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that we all have some degree of addiction and some of the research out now is telling us that it's even more prevalent than we thought. And some of it is because our biology, kind of who we are and what we're about physiologically is like a mismatch for our current society and the way we live. And to really understand addiction is to understand something in our physiology, our dopamine mechanism. And uh, we all have one of the biggest breakthroughs in understanding addiction is understanding the dopamine uh, part of it and our pleasure in our pain reward system in our body is uh, co-located. It's in the same area. So when we have this experience of pleasure that we get from whatever it is, it could be food, it could be gambling, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be social media. It's, you could think of it, I have this as an example. It's like if when you were a kid, if you could remember like a childhood playground with a teeter-totter on it, the way addiction is, is when we have the pleasure, it gets tilted towards pleasure. But our body is something that's always working towards homeostasis and balance. So whenever we have that balance towards pleasure, there's a part of our body that is saying, let's correct that. We can't have too much of that. And we have to have the other side, which is pain. So the best description I heard of it is like these pain gremlins 
jump on that side of the teeter-totter to balance that back out and we're fine. But then we want that reward part, the pleasure part again, which is why addictions come about. It's we want more of that and it's harder to get that because now the gremlins on the other side are even more vigilant about hopping on there. So it makes us want even more of this. And the other thing that's really important in this is the first time we do it, and this is true of a lot of drugs, is it's so great, we wanna do that again, but because the body's trying to balance, it never seems as great. So we try even more, and we try even more, and we try even more. And that process is what's leading to an addiction. There's another really important part of this to understand and, and really keep in mind with it, which is the reason that leaning towards becoming even more addicted gets more strong is that almost everything in between seems to have less oomph to it, less life to it. The great dinner out, maybe not as great anymore. The great this, maybe not. I used to enjoy doing this, maybe not as much anymore because that, that process throws off what usually is our baseline, we call it a tonic level of dopamine, which is always there, but when it gets thrown off, we need this much rather than this much, which is why it seems like nothing is as interesting, nothing is as appealing. And the reason this is important is people tell me all the time, I can't believe this happened to him. I can't believe this happened to her. She had everything. She had this, she had that. He had this, he had that. But to that person at that point, that doesn't seem to matter as much as getting to that point and you know, the strength of the addiction. And it's so incredible. And the one other reason I think this is important to understand is that, and the stigma part, is it used to be, we could think of as, the person with an addiction is the person who is out on the street, homeless, and they ran their life into the ground. But we, we no longer look at it that way. The person with the addiction could be the person running a company. It could be a CEO. It could be a CFO. It could be uh, any high-level position. It's no longer a only these people can have addictions. This is something that anybody can face. And um, I'll talk even more about that in a little bit. But for right now, I know Mandy has a couple things that she'd like to say as well. But um, so, but I hope that's a start to answer your amazingly great question. So thanks, Linda. Absolutely. Go ahead, Mandy. Okay, so the question was, what's going on in our communities, correct? Yes, yes. So, yeah, from your perspective, what, what, do, we, what do we have going on? You know, help our audience understand so what we've this had, looks like. We've had the pleasure to have an amazing hospital grant within Bellin Systems um, and HSH, HSHS Systems and our community for, we're celebrating our six-year anniversary because we just got our renewal of grant. Um, and... The community, it's struggling. Um, COVID started it. I mean, um, all meetings went to Zoom. 
we are very much a love you program within our anonymous programs and what we do in face-to-face kind of fell short. So that really hurt our communities. You know, when somebody picks up a coin to celebrate a one month, we all get up and hug them. You know, those hugs are so valuable. Um, everything became about, you know, being close to one another and kinship to wearing masks and saying, stay away from one another. And that was very hard for people new in recovery, struggling in our communities right now. Um, I can tell you, I have some really tired peer specialists and recovery coaches. Um, we've seen more um, death within this, um, more fentanyl overdoses, definitely more meth and cocaine induced um, overdoses that are you know, causing toxicities. Younger people, um, I know from a standpoint within the hospitals that they are, they're full all the time with addiction and mental health lately to the point where, you know, you're trying to find a bed for somebody with, you know, an ailment or an elderly person and you know you're trying to find a bed and you've got an overwhelming of addiction in it and abscesses and infections and there's been a lack of being able to find treatment for people um medicaid badger care kicked in but there's still the 1200 out of pocket now you know counties do help with that but there's no detox for meth or opiates um in our whole state i mean you can't alcohol and benzos so the resort coming out of hospitals or even police going on scene to overdoses that we go to is they come to us. They get a peer specialist recovery coach for a year and we help them through with live life experience. You know, um, the wait list to see a psychiatrist or psychologist, which they need to get medication is so long. Um, I see a community struggling. <clears throat> I think our biggest thing in our community that I've brought up lately is, um, there's a lot of family members out there that are losing people. You know, my best, one of my best friends passed away. I'm the one that found him for his mother and um, the anniversary is coming up and, and there's not enough resources for our family members losing people. I lost my sister in May to a cocaine induced uh, overdose and I can't find a sibling program anywhere, but online. Um, and if you're looking at that addiction, you know, you say you can't go about it alone. It takes an army. And we work in the, tr we work in the trenches of it. We see those things. And then we hand them off, you know, people like doc over here and the families, you know, I just, you need the kinship, you need your family. And when a family loses a child to addiction, it crumbles that family it crumbles those siblings. And they need to come together as a whole. You, you need people to support that family just as much as the addict. I choose to use, right? I don't, I get it. There's books, there's brainwaves, there's all this stuff. It's genetic. It's this, but here's the bottom line. Okay. I picked up a drug or drink. I loved it. It was great. It filled the hole that I had. I also had a choice to put it down. I have no better. We all have a conscience or unconscious and we choose to pick up that family member does not choose to have the things that we put on them. They don't choose that. They choose after a while to enable, of course, your mother's getting, it's your mother, you know, your father, like they birthed you. There's a heart that goes there. We're taught in the olden days, you love your family. Your family comes first, no matter what. And sometimes I don't blame moms for being the way they are. I love my baby too, but family, family's really struggling out there in our communities right now with the losses of people even cousins, aunts, people you won't even think of that struggle. So that's my biggest niche with everything this year is helping those families. 
us a story, Mandy. Tell, you know, I'm sure you, you've seen a lot over the years and, and have seen a lot of examples of, of what this looks like. But again, to kind of help our audience, you know, to really understand what it looks like, you know, can you tell us a like a story of, of someone, you know, that, that went through this experience and, and what that looked like? Yes. I mean, I have so many stories and right now, Bellin, we're going through like a list of like, I'm going through a list of 30 people right now that have had no treatment down on their luck, you know, died five or six times. And in my world saying that's like, well, whatever they died five or six times. Cause that's the disease, right? That's overdose, but they're alive today and doing well. Um, I think, you know, there's a story to be told about an addict that passes away. And I'm huge with that is, um, People are seeing as that, oh, well, that addict passed away. Well, oh, that's just another overdose passed away. But it's not like that because that person has a family and a life. And like, so I'll use Mitch because he is probably now my new, like, this is the infamous story. A kid that just did amazing. I mean, the kid was amazing. He was an artist. He was spectacular. He had a heart of gold, wanted to help the world, was working as a volunteer at the homeless shelter before he passed struggled so much with opiates and he started with weed his family is amazing he's got the most amazing mother and father they're like family to me his aunt is in recovery 12 years his other aunt was in recovery and he was a great kid sports cutest could be little lamb crummy boy well tall but he struggled with opiates i met him years back in the hospital and when i went in on a call and he overdosed we counted 10 times the 11th time was the end and he got loved through the whole process. But you know, here's what people miss within all that addiction is that he grew up in a great home, but he, he just had a, a void he couldn't fill, you know, that he, he gave his heart to everyone and his heart was so big. It just broke, you know, when you give to others so much, sometimes that heart breaks and he had nine months strong, nine months strong, which is huge. He was able to go to his brother's wedding be with his family for nine months, drug free. And unfortunately, a few months after he passed away and I was the one for his mom to find him. She knew in her heart, but asked me to go in. And I went in and I knew he was gonna be gone a couple of days. I knew what I was walking into, but that's part of what we do for these families. I don't, I don't want a mother to remember her child that way. Mm -hmm. I'd rather, I've seen five overdoses now that have passed on in the last two years. And I've saved 16 lives with Narcan. Um, one was in my arms, pretty much gone and we brought her back. So, you know, that's the story I can tell is Mitch. And, and now with Mitchell's passing, you know, there's such a story about, we have to believe in higher powers, right? They say in recovery, you got to find a higher power. You need a higher power. It's not just you. And the biggest thing that like I go through with Mitch's story is there's such a power in that higher power of somebody that passes. We, we in addiction feel that somebody passes away so that we can help down here to help these guys. And so we've, everyone in recovery has lost so many people this year. It's uncanny. We've just lost so many people that now if I lose a client or I lose someone, I'm like, yep, there's another one for my spirit team. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another one that's going to help me do the so needed work down here to help these guys get out of the trenches. So we don't lose more for their sake and the families and Mitchell's a great story because honestly, since Mitchell's passing, he became one of my best friends. Well, I mean, before he passed, but with his passing and even losing my own sister, that belief 
kept me from picking up because I could have very easily relapsed after 11 years, losing my baby sister to this. Mm-hmm. And I lost Mitch and Josie six, six months apart. Mm. And he was my best friend. So um, having the belief that I can, you know, as somebody in recovery, count on praying to them. And that spirituality is huge. And, you know, I joked around with his aunt actually this morning and I said, hey, the anniversary of Mitchell's death's coming up. You know, it's on the 22nd, found him on the 23rd. It's 21st or 22nd. I said, you know, we have to get him a one-year sobriety coin because this is the first year that kid's got one year clean because he's in heaven. And she was joking. So she's actually getting him a one-year sobriety coin for our NA meeting to put on a chair, an empty chair for him to celebrate his one year. Because Uh I believe, you know, you're in heaven, you're sober. So what? There's a plane apart from us. You know, and some people have different beliefs, but listen, Mitch is a great lesson in why addiction needs spirituality. You got to treat the whole person, but they forget the whole person comes with a spirit. Yeah. So we got to treat the spirit too. I mean, yeah, it, it all has to go together. But Mitch's story is one of my faves, even though he passed on. There's just a grace about knowing that somebody had nine months clean and sober with their family and he may have passed, but there's a healing process with that family with that, that if I can keep that family believing that Mitch is still right here in their hearts, that's going to keep them from suicide, divorce, falling apart. You got to keep that family whole, even though that person passes, especially if he has a brother that needs help, you know, a brother that needs love too, so well, Mandy, thank you for sharing that story. And I think all of us, you know, we, we are so sorry for your loss and, and for Mitch's family's losses and all the losses, you know, that have, that have happened through this. So we, we definitely give you our sincerest you know, sympathies. Um, one question that popped up in the chat that I thought um, you may want to answer uh, if you'd like, that the question is, how do you care for yourself? Um, giving out all of this care for others. How do you take care of you, Mandy, when you're you're so busy taking care of everybody else? What, what does that look like? Yeah, that is a very good question. Service providers are, I mean, I look at the burnout rate with addiction counseling and it's five years, what five years about? And we just actually lost two counselors to treatment centers to overdoses in the last two months that had five years clean and nine. And we just had two more people relapse that have over 10 years clean in our community that work in the service field of this. Um, taking care of myself, like you really want a real answer. This gets a little weird. Okay, so um, the audience wants to know. So know, okay, the here we go. Let's open this can of worms. Um, so basically, okay, so with our grant, we have this um, one month program with all our recovery coaches. They go on with our LPC counselor, Jennifer, who's amazing. And she does the supervision and we take care of their self-care through that. All of our coaches work on wrap, a wrap, the wrap notebook and get little assignments. Um, now for me being the supervisor of all this four counties, all the death, all the processes, we run 33 coaches. We have currently 208 clients on our docket plus 30 people in houses. Um, I was really torn at 10 years clean on where I wanted to be. And a lot of addicts, when they get older and age in their sobriety, they get really like, don't, don't talk, right? Especially when you run an organization with tons of people that depend on you. Um, I found spirituality to get clean, but I've never found spirituality like I found after Mitchell's passing. There was a point 
at five years clean when I was doing this work, it was either drink at my burnout rate or go hike the Appalachian Trail. I hiked the Appalachian Trail. My mom said, go walk it out. So I chose a 2000 mile trail to go walk it out. Um, I get spirituality. Um, I go to the gym. I try to eat right. Um, I just had breast cancer a year ago and got through that. Well, mm. right before Mitchell passed was my remission surgery. Um, oh. I count on my family and my friends. Um, I talk to my mom a lot. My friends, I have a sponsor still at 11 years. I still have a sponsor, same sponsor. I go to four meetings a week like clockwork. I go to Al-Anon. I'm working the Al-Anon steps. I have to stay in our communities. But the biggest thing is this year with Mitchell's passing, it was a dark spot with Joe, my sister and Mitch, and I had to find a place to turn. And honestly, I started a whole new form of spirituality, and I became a shaman. And that's kind of what happened that this year. So shamanic practices, and I took um, Amy Wolinski's trainings through Golden Light, um, her four wins training, just to kind of figure out, well, all these people pass, and I'm always there. There's so much death, and death is what has always brought me out, losing people. I've lost so many and being adopted. And I joined the four wins program, and I, I found a whole new family within that program. The, the women that I went through are very strong. Um, Amy's an amazing teacher, and she's helped guide me a lot. And um, I became a Reiki master this year um uh you know finish the shamanic program um do a lot of kind of other spirituality stuff that happens sometimes um i needed a resource i needed something to get myself out of this because i was just dying inside and sometimes the ceos that have all these people that depend on them are the ones that are the strong ones that stay quiet a lot yeah. and and i had i had to have a voice that i wasn't okay and that voice came through spirituality and through joining that shamanic training. And um, my belief in the other side became stronger. I mean, I've lost so many people, so many people we've been close to this year. It's 18, 18 this year. We've lost people that we knew very well in our communities in just Green Bay, right? So that's just who I knew. Yeah. But I've lost three personal clients this year. Just recently, two of them, actually, back to back, two months ago. Um, so, yeah, 17 in a year. So wow. I do a lot of spirituality. I could never meditate. I'm ADHD up the hill. And I found meditation through shamanic practice. Like, I can actually meditate now. Um, I think sitting in a place and just being still and listening to your higher self is a very good healing thing and not a lot of people do it mm -hmm. so yeah meditation all that stuff has been really key to my self-care this year other than that i'm a big backpacker my self-care is in the woods when i start knowing that i'm getting off track like i just bought a van converted a van we're starting a work program with vans at darjun to convert camper vans for middle class um and if I can just go throw my backpack on and just take off, like I went to Colorado right before Christmas and just to climb Pikes Peak and go up to, you know, Garden of the Gods. Nature is huge for me for healing. So yeah, my, my LPC, I'm fortunate to have her as our chief of operations under me at Darjun. She'll say, ah, you're getting a little finicky there, kid. You better take your pack and go live in the woods for a couple of days. I say, yep. So I bought a van to go live in the woods and come back before Bella and says, get back here. <laughs> yeah, they like well, to get back love, here, Mandy. So, 
I love so much of what you're sharing, Mandy, and thank you for, you know, being so vulnerable and sharing all of that with us. And what I really hear you speaking to is what we talk about a lot. We talk about all the different dimensions of well-being and, and the different things that we need to pay attention to to keep ourselves balanced. And it sounds like you're so very well tuned into that and you mm -hmm. know that you need that to keep to keep yourself balanced. So so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we're um, opening up spirituality huge this year throughout the system. It's um, it's key. We need it. So that's awesome. Well, we have about five minutes left. Um, Charles, I want to get I want to get some final thoughts from you and um, maybe a little teaser on where we plan to go with our next segment because we're going to continue the discussion on addiction. And then while Charles, Charles is giving his wrap up, if anyone else has any questions for Charles or for Mandy, uh, please put those in the chat and we will try to get to those yet today. So Charles, over to you. Yeah, one thing I wanna say about what Mandy said again, thank you for that amazing, amazing story, as well as your, your transparency about self-care and importance. Part of what this program is all about is being able to bring psychological, mental health, well-being, uh, awareness, so forth, and a ray of sunshine to people. I always call it a shot of um, injection of uh, oxygen, mm -hmm. psychological oxygen. So having done that, thank you so much. The treatment part of addiction um, and even how we help ourselves, part of one of the most prevailing theories out there right now is our lack of movement is one of the things contributing most to the increase in addiction. We have so much right at our fingertips. We evolved to go and get dopamine needs met. Uh, our ancestors had to walk tens and, and, and beyond, tens of miles beyond just to get water or food. Now we have everything seemingly without even having to leave our homes. And the, the fact that you're saying that my movement is part of my recovery, part of my sustained recovery and well-being even adds greater credence to that theory. So I'm glad it's so much a part of it. Um, and then as we move forward in this program in February, taking the addictions topic more into even more treatment focus. What is the treatment? How do we overcome it? How do we deal, help people deal with addictions? And um, that it is such a different community right now. Um, there was a time where taking one, whatever drug of choice uh, was that. Now with fentanyl and what can happen, all I can take is one for something like that to happen. The day and age we live in right now is so frightening. I'm so glad you're helping the people and the families that you are. And next month we'll talk even more about the addiction process, the treatment of it, and then the sustained aftercare. So, um, yeah, so one, the, the last thing I wanna say is just that as we take this to the new year, I hope everybody's starting their new year with, with hope and going into it with a degree of awe, interest, wonder about what might be possible to all of you and what you're doing to go and get to what is possible for you and that we're all living our best lives, being our best selves, 
And hopefully today was something to help in that direction as we start the year, particularly with anybody who might be struggling with, doesn't even have to be an addiction, a behavior that you want help with. And talking with someone is always the first step and being radically honest with yourself, whether it's writing out about you to yourself of what you're struggling with or talking with someone about it and being honest with yourself and that person is a great first step. So um, and next month we'll talk about even more how you walk down that step, that step to treatment of recovery. So um, any final, do, do we have an opportunity for Mandy to talk a little bit about? Yeah, and one? I do. And I do have, I do have a question I think directed towards Mandy. It Good. says, okay. how do you help clients notice in themselves when they're approaching their breaking point, so to speak, and knowing they need, need to do something about it? Like, you know, when you need to go backpacking. So I guess the person is, is trying to, you know, how do you help them notice in themselves when they, when they need to do something to, to get some assistance? Um, so being somebody in recovery and being, you know, pretty bad in addiction, I know when I need the help. So that's the blessing of having these houses is, um, we can tell when somebody's off. Okay. So they will get very ornery. <laughs> you know, they start being mean to us. You know, you always hurt the people that love you the most. Same theory. Um, and we don't really sugarcoat things at Darjeeling. I feel like we're re-raising that mindset in a way. So some of this is tough love and I may go into a house and one of my guys is struggling and he's being kind of rude and I'll say, Hey, you know, how many meetings you've been to what's going on? Like, is there something going on with you? Because you're not acting like you usually act, you know? And, um, usually within a second or two, there's a trust level, um, that they'll tell us, but that's kind of like when we go into the hospital system. Um, let's say I go in and I'm at a bedside. In fact, I got two coaches at hospitals for overdoses right now. And back on the way here, that's why I was almost late. Um, <laughs> when I go into a hospital bed and I say, after the social worker goes in, hi, my name is Mandy. I'm here. I'm a part of a grant. Um, first of all, I want to tell you, I'm not here to get you clean and sober. That's on you. You know, we're person centered, but I've been where you're at. I remember sitting in this hospital bed after walking my head and getting stitches. I remember no family here. I remember feeling the way I did. And I also remember when I made the choice to finally say, all right, I'm not going to drink any longer. And we say, I've been there. There's this trust level that all of a sudden like goes, oh, I can trust you. So that question is a hard question because we've, if they're in our houses and stuff and we already have them, they typically will come to us. I have a theory with our houses. I'll say, all right, if you guys have relapsed or there's something I don't know about, I don't like wasting money on urine tests because we're broke, right? Please don't make me waste the urine test. Just tell me the truth. And right away, all right, Mandy, we, I used, I used, I just don't want to get kicked out, da, da, da. And a lot of times they'll come to us, like one of our guys, a guy offered a meth the other day and he's your typical, go back out, eight years coming out of prison. And he came right to us and said, can we go to my PO? I got to tell him this. Like, I don't want him to think I used that, but I got to be clean right away. And it was two hours after he was offered the meth. And he said, if it was heroin, I, I might've taken it. He said, but um, I gotta be honest with everybody right now. I didn't, but I don't want no funny business. You know, he's trying to live a good life. So there's a trust when you say I've been there off the bat. 
that instinctively they'll say to you, they'll, they tell the truth. I mean, they tell me more than I want to know sometimes, but they don't hesitate a lot to tell us the truth. We don't get a lot of people that try to hide things behind our backs, you know, but we also teach them we love them and gratitude. And when you take somebody that had nothing and you give them a bed and nobody else believes in them, they tend to have enough gratitude to not to always be forthcoming with you. Mm-hmm. Not all the time. I mean, not all the time, but I hope that answers the question. Yeah. And just, and just one other question, Mandy, and I, I know we're running out of time here, but um, someone else had asked, how does the family know that the person feels a void? How do they help them fill the void if they don't know it exists? Um, that's again, a difficult question. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of my transition to getting clean, I would not have listened to my mother. I just want to, I had too much guilt where I blamed her. I was also mad at something, so I blamed her. I blamed her and my father for everything. Um, if a family member notices something's going on, sometimes that family can say and just sit down and say, hey, you know, what's going on? The biggest thing my mom did, and I will tell you, is she came to my treatment center with this new puppy that she'd gotten. And now I never even knew this about her, my adopted mom. I look at her like a saint, right? Never did anything. And she sat down with me and like four of my buddies in the treatment center in Florida and said, you know what, you guys, I used weed a couple times. I even sold some weed for my friend. And then one time I tried a little bit of a shroom and I wasn't always the poster child for great. And I went, what? And she told us this story and okay, it was minute. It was weed, right? We were all, you know, heroin, math, drinking, whatever. But the fact that she openly went to our level, right? And said, yo, I did this. And I think there's something that I always tell parents, listen, you did stuff when you were teenagers. You did stuff in your 20s. Don't be afraid if you have a child that's suffering from addiction to talk to them about that. Now is the time to actually talk to them about those secrets you may have in your own closet and share with them because that's going to show them that you're not perfect. You got out of things. And my other bet is addiction is very hard right now. If you have somebody struggling, reach out to resources, um, reach out. We're here mainly because we help parents get people to treatment. We're resource brokers. We help you bypass all that. We also see them on a peer level. There's other orgs in the state that do it also. Um, that I can make a list of for you to send out. But call somebody that knows what they're getting themselves into because you can get too deep and then you got a kid in your basement shooting heroin and you don't want to be the one to find them deceased and take on that guilt. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Well, Mandy, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. There's so many uh, thanks and kudos for you. Uh, in the chat. So I'll make sure to get those comments to you so you can see all of those because lots lots of love for you today, Mandy, from our audience. So I think um, everyone just really appreciated your transparency and hearing all your stories and a huge thank you um, for everything you're doing in our community. We, we're, so, we're so honored to be connected to you and to be connected to the great work that you're doing. So I did put... Um, the Darjun website in the chat, so darjun.org, to get a little bit more information. And if you want to connect with Mandy, that would probably be a a good place to do so as well. Uh, But we are out of time for today, so I want to thank everybody for being with us. Thank you, Charles, as always, for, for for your great insight. 
Really looking forward to our continued conversation that we'll be having um, in February surrounding this topic. So thanks again, everyone, and have a great rest of the day. Take care, everyone. Happy New Year.